Hey, how you doing? I'm Steve Folland. Welcome to another one. This episode is supported by Gold Stag Accounts. They get what it's like to be self-employed, be it tax returns, ongoing support or becoming limited. They love to help freelancers get their finances sorted, myself included. Set up a free chat today at goldstagaccounts.com slash being freelance. And right now, let's find out what it's like being freelance for copywriter and author Sarah Townsend. Really, I've built my business around being a mum. So I knew nothing about being a mum. I knew nothing about running a business. It was, it was tough. I, in theory, don't work Fridays since I turned 50. That was kind of one of my big goals, that I was going to do different stuff, no client work on Fridays. If you're like me and you're a perfectionist control freak and you have a fundamental inability to ask for help, get over yourself. And the quicker you can get over yourself, the better. Yes, so there is Sarah, who is a freelance marketing copywriter. Also, she has written a book called Survival Skills for Freelancers, which came out recently. So uh, I highly recommend checking it out. You can find that uh, link to that at beingfreelance.com, as you can for all of our guests. This is the last one of season 11. It's been the weirdest one because (laughs) it's been during lockdown. This is the first episode that I've recorded in my co-workspace since March. Uh, So thank you very much to all of the guests in particular from this season because I know how hard it's been you know to fit in things like this around your actual work and life and just keeping your head together during a pandemic so an extra thank you to all of the guests from this season for um yeah for basically showing up when uh, I know it was extra difficult to do so please do go back listen and reach out to them if you enjoy their episodes think about sharing them online And while I take the summer break, I will still be hanging out in the Being Freelance community. You can come and join that. And I'll also be doing the Doing It For The Kids podcast, which, did I mention, it ended up winning the Bronze Award for Best Business Podcast at the British Podcast Awards just last weekend, which we were so thrilled about. So thank you for all your kind messages about that. If you've not heard it, it's aimed at freelancing parents, although a lot of the episodes are mainly just about freelancing, less about the parenting. So please do give that a listen as well and then being freelance will return with season 12 in september right now though let's crack on chat to this week's guest and that is freelance copywriter and author sarah townsend hey sarah hey steve it's a pleasure to be here last one of the season so you know no pressure right (laughs) as ever let's get started hearing how you got started being freelance well, it's a bit of a long story. Do you want the long version or the short version? I guess in a nutshell, I I, start, I didn't go to uni. I started working in financial services admin, which sounds very dull, but it gave me a good background for uh, learning customer service and all that kind of thing. And while I was with financial services company Eagle Star, I moved into their marketing department, found I absolutely loved marketing. And... Three years later, opted for voluntary redundancy, applied for a job with my publishing company who were publishing our customer magazine at the time. And they were based down in Bristol. And they were like, yeah, great. Come and work for us. You can be one of our editors and account managers. So I went there, worked there for three years doing customer magazines for various, various companies. And basically, From there, I got pregnant in 1999 and they didn't want me to come back part time. It was the late 90s. It just wasn't a thing, really. Working remotely wasn't a thing. Part time working, being flexible around parenthood just 
wasn't really an option. And um, they suggested I went freelance. Hadn't even occurred to me at that point. Sort of thought about it while I was on maternity leave. Seemed like a good idea. And 20 years later, 21 years later, here I am. Oh, my goodness. So they suggested you went freelance to do freelance stuff for them? Yeah, well, originally they said, if you go freelance, we will supply you with some work to sort of tide you over. So I, I did editing and proofreading for the company that I was working for. And I spent the whole of my maternity leave basically sending out letters. Remember letterhead? <laughs> there was no email in those days. There was barely any internet. I certainly didn't have internet on my computer. And I kind of sent around messages to any businesses that I thought I uh, might fancy working for. And a couple of them bit really early on. And um, yeah, it's it's built from there. So when you were sending those letters, which let's face it, these days could be an email, were yeah. you like researching the company that you were doing or were they like a blanket sort of message? Yeah, it was probably a blanket message, if I'm perfectly honest. I didn't really know the first thing about marketing my own business. I didn't know the first thing about being a self-employed person or how to get clients. There was no social media that I could talk about who I was and what I did or build the relationships or the connections that you need to um, to turn strangers into friends and ultimately into clients. So it was a bit of a, um, you know, a bit of a scattergun approach. Let's be honest. I didn't, ha- I didn't have much of a strategy. I think I got lucky. <laughs> what can I say? So how did it grow? So you're, you're starting a business as well as a family. Yeah. I started off doing three days a week when my daughter was really little and uh, she was in nursery part time. And yeah, I worked kind of quite short days, I think, sort of nine to four to begin with. And as she got older and went to primary school and then my son was born and really I built my business around being a mum. So I knew nothing about being a mum. I knew nothing about running a business. (laughs) It was it was tough. It was really tough. And it was quite the juggling act. I was rubbish at boundaries. Absolutely rubbish. And yeah, didn't really know when to say no to work, kind of pretty much took on anything that I was offered as many freelancers do early days. Yeah, it was it was difficult. Has your business changed much since then? Yeah, it has. uh, At some point, (laughs) some indeterminable point, I got serious about being a business rather than just a freelancer. A lot of people don't treat it as a business and don't necessarily adopt the mindset of a business owner where you keep your finances separate, separate bank account, you pay an accountant to do your accounts properly, you have a proper brand, um, you get a proper website and you kind of start investing in your business. So certainly as my kids got older, when they went to secondary school, that was a really big turning point for me because suddenly I had all this time and it was it was quite a difference suddenly I was able to start work when my son got the school bus uh kind of half seven in the morning and I'd work until he got home which was long days and it took a bit of adjusting to but that was I think the point where I thought right I'm gonna do this I'm gonna take this more seriously and how did you 
continue to sort of get new clients? After a while, did it just take care of itself or was it always like a consistent thing that you were going for? Yeah, I think after a while, I mean, a long while, to be fair. So to to begin with, when there was barely any internet, obviously there was no social media at all. Um, Email was very new. Nobody really knew what they were doing all that well. So a lot of it was very hit and miss. It felt very trial and error. As social media started, I was a bit of an early adopter with Twitter and things like that. So I started building up my network that way. And certainly for the first probably 12 at least years of running a business, I didn't do any networking. I was terrified of networking. So when I kind of got over myself and started going out there, putting myself out there as a professional copywriter, I did expand my network and I guess I just nurtured those contacts and from those people getting to know me and getting to know more about what I did and who I did it for, they would start to think of me. I wasn't necessarily directly plugging my business to them, but it's that know, like and trust thing, isn't it? So as they got to know who I was and they started to believe that I could do a good job And I was building up the social proof because I'd worked for a lot of businesses by then. I had quite a lot of examples of my work that I could share. And yeah, I guess just started building a reputation and it it grew from there. How about the pricing side of it? Like, How did you get get to grips with that? Mm, I think that's probably, if not the biggest challenge, I think probably the biggest challenge about being freelance is the isolation, possibly. But but pricing, knowing what to charge is so difficult because you feel like you're in this little freelance bubble and you don't really have the context of being in perhaps an office where you can bat. I mean, perhaps if you do use a co-working space, you can talk to your colleagues and your peers about what they charge. There's research out there that a lot of the groups have put together, um, certainly from in, from a, a copywriter's perspective. But I think I was a, a bit finger in the air with it all, really. I didn't have a strategy. I, 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 to be honest, Steve, I've never really had much of a strategy for anything. Even, <laughs> even the book kind of wrote itself. I didn't even, I, I never had a plan to write a book, you know. But I think with pricing I've become more confident in knowing you know it's so easy to say you know value your own worth don't undervalue your expertise like I had these headshots done at the weekend and I just I just had to tell her that she was undercharging because (laughs) I mean like quite often I feel like I want to pay people more than they ask me for things because I almost feel guilty because I'm kind of like well I I earn a decent I earn a decent wage, you know, a decent living from what I do. It worries me a little bit when people undercharge. But I guess if you're making a living from that and that's what you feel comfortable doing, then that is going with your gut ultimately. Hmm. But it's, it, it is difficult to get that context, I think, when you don't have other people to ask. Perhaps if you're in one of the, like, your your own Facebook group, the Being Freelance group on Facebook, if somebody put out a post saying, look, you know, I, I've got, someone's asked me for a logo design, you know, what would you guys be prepared to pay for that? I think those groups are brilliant for that because there's a certain element of what 
goes on in the group stays in the group. I don't think mm. anybody would kind of go, oh, my God, you know, somebody wanted to charge X for a logo, you know, oh, oh, oh. What, get, what, who do they think they are or or you know it's it's like I think there's a, a, as much of a stigma around undercharging as there is overcharging because with the overcharging you have the little self-doubt you know who's people are going to think oh, I'm not worth that much and who does she think she is to charge that much but I think you've got to get over that nagging voice in your head and you've got to develop the confidence to feel comfortable enough with what you want to charge, what sits right with you. And I also think it can be helpful to kind of role play conversations with money, with like a trusted friend or your partner. I I used to do it with my kids. I've got grown up kids. And sometimes I'd say to my daughter, oh, you know, I want to ask this much for this job. It feels about right. And um, can I just have a practice conversation with you? Well, my experience of kids, even half their age, is that they are excellent negotiators. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And if you brought your kids up to be excellent negotiators, go you, because I certainly have with mine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I do sometimes think, oh, my God, this is such hard work. And I think one day this is going to be such a brilliant skill for somebody else to be at the end of. I just wish it wasn't me. Um, (laughs) When it comes to sort of marketing marketing yourself these days, like if I look at your website, for example, I notice that you have, um, uh, you know, sign up to my newsletter, you know, get get simple tips for blah, blah, blah. Like who 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 is your audience for those things? Do, do you find that you're helping other writers with that mm. sort of thing or are you helping people at the businesses who might be hiring you? Ha, has How has that evolved? Uh, yeah, well... I, I would say my my ideal audience is potential clients, but the audience in reality is quite often other freelancers and other writers, and I'm completely happy with that. I think ultimately, as long as, for me, it's kind of now about giving value back because I've had a successful freelance career for at least some of the 21 years that I've been freelance, and self-employment has been good to me. It's been challenging, and I've been big highs and lows but I feel like I've got to a stage where I'm kind of at a point where I need to perhaps reassess my own offering and perhaps do more mentorship and consulting I guess than just the words so I think I have definitely had clients who have subscribed to my newsletter who have watched and read my posts for 18 months and then they've gone oh (laughs) maybe you can write our website for us we're doing a rebrand or you know can you take a look at our marketing strategy so it it works I'm not at all bothered in fact I kind of welcome other freelancers and other copywriters subscribing if it adds value and it helps them then yeah because of course you've also written this book as you mentioned so survival skills for freelancers so that's obviously not aimed at your clients no, although some some of my clients are self-employed. Oh, okay, fair enough. So how how did that come about? Well, originally when my business uh, turned 18, so th- I guess three years ago now, I put out in my newsletter, funnily enough, what did everybody think that I should do to celebrate? And a few people said, oh, would you share 
you know, the things that you've learned, the most important lessons that you've learned from 18 years of working for yourself. And I thought, well, that's a great idea. I'll write a blog post. So I started it and I sat with it for freaking months and I could not nail this post. I just kept coming back to it and going, no, no, I can't do it. And I think I was just frozen in perfectionist kind of angst because I was like, how in the hell do you cram 18 years worth of tips into a blog post? You just can't do it. So finally, when I got to 20 years of my business, I don't know what happened, but I just got over myself and just decided it didn't need to be perfect. And actually, if I could just summarize some of the things I've learned, that would be good enough. So I put the good enough version of this blog post out there and people just responded so well to it. They literally were so grateful I think for the honesty and the reality of freelance life that people don't often don't talk about so there's a lot out there about why you should work for yourself you know you get to work for you know how you like when you like where you like and for people that you like doing work that you love right but there's a lot more to it than that and I don't think we help one another by kind of putting this little rosy tinted sheen on self-employment it's much more helpful to share the reality and how to tackle the reality because then everybody knows what to do you know okay well I I should expect a bit of self-doubt or I should expect unpredictable workloads and clients and income and yeah I, I think from the positive response I had it became far and away my most positive my most well-received blog post I just thought well I've never wanted to write a book I literally had I had a a little bit in there that kind of got lost in the the book equivalent of the cutting room floor at the in, in the final edit basically saying that I had never wanted to write a book and everybody kept saying to me oh have you ever thought about writing a book I was like no no I, I don't know I just kind of got the idea in my head and when I've got an idea, I am like a dog with a bone. I can't stop until I've achieved that thing, whatever that thing may be. So I get obsessed with the new thing. <laughs> and and that's what the book became. It became the new thing. So I became obsessed with how I could do it as well as humanly possible. How long did it take you to end up turning that blog post into a book? Not very long. Um, I'd say in total maybe eight months start to finish but the actual writing process but I well I gave myself January off client work which is quite a big deal really when you're self-employed and obviously you have to have the luxury of having well kind of more of a necessity really when you're self-employed um you have to have savings to fall back on to be able to do that because I've been a single mum for 13 years so it's just my income coming in um so yeah I I, I thought right I, I can't focus on things until I finish this first draft so I gave myself January to kind of nail it and I'd already been working on it for a while at that point maybe on and off for a while but I thought no it's just not working for me I I am just laser focused I've just got I've got a weird brain I'm not you know I I I can't let things go I literally can't let things go um so I have to I have to finish them like big time computer finisher 
so yeah I, I I guess in total probably eight months from initial idea to launch not very long really wow well it's a great book um we'll, we'll put a link of course at being freelance dot com thank you but then do you know what it's like people keep saying to me how many copies have you sold and i'm like i have no idea and i don't care because for me it's not about that it's about helping as many freelancers as possible to kind of accelerate their own success because 20 years is a damn long time to get to where i've got to it shouldn't take that long and it took that long because (laughs) i was rubbish at the business bit you know, but it, I, I didn't have I didn't have anything to kind of read that was all the advice that I would have loved to have myself. Because a big part of the book and like, I haven't finished it yet because I when when I saw that it might become the book club book, I thought, well, I'll stop reading it and then I can read it when I'm meant ah, to read it. Yeah, good point. Um, but, um, you know, just from 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 reading the first bits of it, I can see that uh, a large part of it is, yeah, there's there's practical skills, like you say, with bank accounts and things, but also about the the sort of well-being, the mental health side of it. You mentioned, for example, for yourself, feeling like isolation is probably one of the biggest challenges mm. that you you come up against. How have you coped? You you work from home, right? I, well, I have done uh, during lockdown, that's for sure. But before lockdown, I was working at my gym, the lounge Ah. bar at my gym. That was like my happy place because I would, I'd get there in the morning about half past eight. I'd do a couple of hours work. I'd go off and do some form of exercise to clear my head and for my own mental health and well-being. And then I'd come back to work and then I'd work for as long as my laptop battery allowed, which with a new shiny Mac is quite a long time. So I'd spent the vast majority of my working day at David Lloyd. Um, Interesting. How long have you done that? A long time, maybe maybe three years kind of regularly and it is for the bars I just love the bars I have headphones on so I listen to music but I like having people around me um I get energized by it and I also find if I'm sitting in a public space it keeps me more um you know like when you're working at home there's always oh my god I should just go and hang the washing uh, I should just go and empty mm. the dishwasher I should probably clear up last night's dishes and I actually, it, it, when I am working from home, I actually use those little breaks in my day to get up and to do some stretches and to move around and to, while I'm sticking the kettle on, I'll maybe stick a wash on. And that's great because that means that you don't finish your working day with like a pile of chores lined up ready for you to do, especially being a single parent. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I love working out of the, out of the home. But I'm lucky enough to have a dedicated office, so that's nice too. So you, I love the fact that you know you, you you're not going to a co-work space and then taking time out of your day to go to a gym. You're going to a gym <laughs> and then fueled by the smell of disinfectant and chlorine, <laughs> mixed with chocolate muffins. You 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 set to work and you spend your day. They must have a nickname for you. Like, do you know what I mean? 
well, you know how you know what? What? do you I see it regularly? I'm not the only person. I'm not the only person who does it. There are so many of us all self-employed. There's a guy who used to be a professional footballer who I've become quite friendly with, who is now a property developer. There is a guy who's a Sky Sports broadcaster who's interviewed me for his own podcast purely through meeting at the gym. <laughs> so it, it's it's actually a really good way to meet people. And yeah, it, it's just, yeah, they have said before, oh, when they get new people behind the bar um, who make the coffee and make my lunch every day, they always say, oh, this is Sarah. She's like part of the furniture. So <laughs> it's not the most flattering uh, <laughs> description, but it's very true. And how about then staying focused on the work? Nowadays, this is you keep it to just the time when you're there at the gym at the desk. Or d- does it seep out of that? No, yeah, it definitely seeps out. So I, I am an early starter with work. I would rather, I, I don't really like working into the evenings. I like my evenings to be chill out time. Um, and my son, my daughter's left home and lives in Bristol now because she goes to uni there, but my son still spends half his time with me. So I don't really like my work time to kind of um merge in with family time that's really important to me so yeah I tend to start pretty early and finish usually at a reasonable time but sometimes as late as half six but then I in theory don't work Friday since I turned 50 that was kind of one of my big goals that I was going to do different stuff no client work on Fridays so you made the decision not to work on Friday so what how how do you keep that clear um, and what do you do with it? <laughs> um, I like that to be kind of my well-being time and my connecting with friends and people that I haven't seen for a long time. Um, and then I will also do things like quite often I'll have chats with people that I would consider business friends. So quite often I'll have like a um, a coffee on a Friday afternoon on a Zoom call with somebody who I've got to know quite well, like Jenny Stallard from Freelance Fields. She's she was one of my Friday coffees last week, and we got on brilliantly. And we kind of share tips to one another, and just kind of put the world to rights, really. And we talk about work, but not always about work. Um, before lockdown, I was meeting different friends for lunch, and I also make sure that I have any kind of appointments. Like I really miss my things like reflexology and going to the chiropractor and I have monthly shiatsu treatments to keep me balanced and they're just amazing for well-being. And I've really missed all of that stuff. So that was kind of a Friday thing for me. It was like hair appointments and just a bit of bit of self-care because that's important. Yeah, that's good. We had Christian on in this season as well. Oh, who, yeah, who yeah. Then kept his Fridays. You know, he was um, volunteering, but you know, just like not work, doing something different. I think it's the way forward. I think I would personally. I think you've got to you've got to tune into what works for you because I think everybody has different patterns. Some people prefer to start work late morning and work into the evening. Uh, some people would prefer to take a break in the afternoon and go for a walk, walk the dog, go out for a bike ride, whatever. I've got colleagues slash peers slash friends. I, I never know what to call business friends, do you? Like, <laughs> <laughs> business buddies? I really don't know. But anyway, those people, I, I know a couple who are really into their mountain biking 
quite often start work early in the morning and then go off for a bike ride in the afternoon. I think you've got to tune into what works for you. Yeah. Now, I always do this thing where I ask for three facts about yourself to make two true, one a lie, and let me figure out the lie. What do you have for me, Sarah? So I once, despite being terrified of heights, I once went up in a micro light with a guy I'd met on a dating app once. (laughs) (laughs) I qualified for the final of the UK Street Dance Championships last year when I was 49. Wow. And I once got stuck in a toilet when I was 10 years old and had to be rescued by the fire brigade. Oh God! You know that is one of my worst fears—getting stuck in a toilet. Oh God! Was, even even now, I—if it's a public toilet, I'm like, how would I be able to get out of this <laughs> just before I lock that door? So where was the toilet where you got stuck? It was in a national trust property called Snow's Hill Manor, which still exists and I still go to quite regularly. But I think they've put the toilets inside now. They used to be in—they <laughs> used to be in like an outbuilding, like a converted stables or something like that and I remember them having bright blue doors and uh yeah and I was there with my grandparents we didn't when I was growing up my parents didn't have a car so if we ever went out for the day it was always with my grandparents um and it was almost always to national trust properties nobody could get you out but the fire brigade so I was only like well a little 10 year old 10 or 11 something like that um not particularly strong not particularly strong even today um trying to kind of like push the door from the inside there was no window it was like kind of a slot like a like a like a horizontal slit I guess behind the toilet it was quite creepy um um my granddad I guess would have been about I don't know, 60, late 50s, possibly. He couldn't open the door from the outside. I was trying from the inside. And then they only had volunteers who were all themselves fairly elderly and nobody was strong enough to open the door. So, um, yeah, the fire brigade had to axe it. Pretty scary. (laughs) I hope you've never watched The Shining since. Um, (laughs) No, I don't do horror. (laughs) So you met a guy on a dating app and on your first date, went up in a microlight. It was actually our second date. So I'd met him once for coffee. To be perfectly honest, I didn't know what a microlight was. I thought it was like a miniature helicopter. And you had like a perspex kind of shield that came down over you, yeah, for protection. But no, no, <laughs> it's completely open. And you have this big kind of flying suit thing over your normal clothes and sort of headphones. Uh, I don't know why. Why would we have had headphones? I, I have so no idea. So that you could but... scream at each other and get to know each other. <laughs> so I was sitting in front of him. It wasn't exactly conversation worthy. I think he was trying to show off because he owned the microlight. It wasn't like we hired one for the day. And we <laughs> flew through actual clouds and it was kind of terrifying. But I have to say even though I'm really terrified of heights because it doesn't move particularly fast. It wasn't as scary as I thought it would be when I saw it was going to be open. And obviously I had my own kind of pride. I couldn't, I couldn't go, Oh no, I'm not doing that. (laughs) So personal pride kind of took over and um, yeah, I went with it. (laughs) Okay. Um, UK street. So you made it to the final of the UK street dance championships. I did. When you were 49. Yeah. As a solo person or in a group? 
it was um, couples, so me and one other lady. Uh, he wasn't quite as old as me, but everybody in our group was from, I think, 30 upwards, but I was by far the oldest. And if I'm perfectly honest, I think the only reason we qualified for the final was because there wasn't a lot of competition in that category, shall we say? <laughs> <laughs> okay, what did you dance to? Um, oh, so with street dance, what they tend to do is montages of different songs. And the one that I remember is that one that goes, you know, with the like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the lassoes. So there was a little bit to that. The rest of it, you, uh, you, you've got me there. I can't remember what the other ones were, but it tends to be like a 30 second snatch of a song and then it like blends into something else and, yeah. Yeah, I have that thing when I do my street dance. So <laughs> you're very convincing on all of them. Not wishing to be rude. I was doubting the street work dance one until you very humbly said, I don't think there were many people in the country. <laughs> yeah. And that's based on me not having seen you dance either. I'm just... Um, so the fact that they have that category, <laughs> of course, increases the odds of being... In the final, uh, microlite dating app. You see, that one yeah. is so random that it feels like <laughs> that must be true. And yet getting stuck in a toilet also feels true. <laughs> oh, I don't know. And, and, and I have to say is that it feels like toilets have changed over the years in order to stop that. It now looks like lots of toilets are openable from the outside yeah. or they have gaps at the top and the bottom so that a child can crawl out. Like It exactly. feels like toilets have changed off the back of experiences of horrified 10-year-olds like yourself. <laughs> In the 70s. <laughs> yeah, it's like those children yeah. grew up and then decided to change the way toilets were designed. <laughs> so that feels true as well. I really don't know. Wow. <sighs> pick one. Um, okay, I'm going to say the street dance. The street dance is the lie. The street dance is not the lie. <laughs> ah, which is brilliant. Um, yeah. You never got stuck in a toilet. I never got stuck in a toilet. No. Damn it. It was quite funny because my nana always used to say, the reason we used to go there was because she always used to say, National Trust properties always have nice, clean toilets and cafes. <laughs> <laughs> and it was always nice, clean toilets. So when my kids were little, I joined the National Trust for the nice, clean toilets too. <laughs> yeah, that's such a good point. That really should be on their posters more often. <laughs> Sausage rolls and nice clean box. Um, <laughs> so obviously you've written the book, Survival Skills for Freelancers. Which out of all of those, because it's partly your experience, but you've also um, interviewed people and you've taken quotes from people. Including your good self. Didn't like to mention it. Um, <laughs> as you were putting it all together, like what out of that, like maybe as a couple or like of the survival skills, as you call them, that you wish that you had started sooner? Yeah, I, I, it is a really difficult one to to narrow down. But for me, I think the biggest one that I struggled with was asking for help. I've, I've just always had this total fundamental inability to ask for help in all areas of my life. Like with my kids, when I was a single mum, when I was really struggling with juggling work and family life, um, I never really had any sort of particularly practical support from my parents or my in-laws when I was still married. So always felt like I had to do everything myself. And then when you go freelance, you suddenly find you've 
got to do your own accounts, your own sales, your own marketing. You've got to be your own life coach, doing all your own admin, emails, all this kind of thing. And actually, it's just the fast train to burnout. Honestly, you need to accept, I think, the things that you really need help with and get into the mindset where actually asking for help outsourcing to someone often another freelancer so you're doing a good thing by helping someone else in their business but outsourcing the things that you're not good at you don't enjoy and that don't make you money is a good sound economic business decision because the chances are you can earn more in your day then it's going to cost you to pay somebody to do the things that you need help with. And even if you can't, it just frees you up to focus on the thing that you love doing, which is more often than not the reason why you went freelance in the first place. So I would say, yeah, if you're like me and you're a perfectionist control freak and you have a fundamental inability to ask for help, get over yourself. And the quicker you can get over yourself, the better. Because having a team of people on your side who are there to support your business is just such an empowering place to be. So who do you have now? This is not something I mentioned in the book, but I've had a cleaner for 20 years because, honest to God, I couldn't have juggled being a mum and running a business and doing all the cleaning. That's the number one essential. There's no way I'm ever letting having a cleaner go. Um, So I have a cleaner. I have an accountant, somebody who helps me with my admin. I use various graphic designers for various things. So I've got somebody who does my web hosting, who does my um, sort of tech support from a web perspective. Um, a graphic designer who does a lot of my branding stuff and an IT company. That's a big one for me because I only pay them something like £26 a month for a retainer for every single time my Mac goes wrong or I'm struggling with something. I just fire them over an email or give them a call and they just hop on it, log in, fix it and job done. That's 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 a that's a game changer. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Having, <laughs> being your own IT department. I spend so much time faffing with printers and Wi-Fi as it oh. is. And those are things that they can't really support with. But honest to God, the bane of my freelance life, I swear, is Wi-Fi <laughs> and not being able to collect, connect to my printer. Like <laughs> <laughs> Freelancer struggles. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much. Check out Sarah's book, Survival Skills for Freelancers. There'll be a link at beingfreelance.com along with the show notes to this where we put transcriptions and also so remember for all of our guests, please do go and find them. And if you've enjoyed it, go reach out to them online as well. And Sarah is uh, part of the community. So come and join us in the Being Freelance community. Click on the button at beingfreelance.com and we will both see you in there as well. But for now, Sarah, thank you so much. 21 years and it feels like (laughs) you're just kicking off something new as well yeah it does it does feel like that to me thank you all the best being freelance it's been an absolute pleasure to to chat to you steve thank you for inviting me on 